Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In your quest to become a better home chef, you probably find yourself wondering things like, what potato should I use in this recipe? How much salt should I put in this dish? Am I even making spaghetti right? But then you forget to Google the answer to your question, or if you do, you feel overwhelmed by the number of opinions out there. Well, my guest today will cut through that noise and answer some of your cooking FAQs once and for all. His name is Daniel Halsman, and he's a chef and the co-author, along with Matt Rodbard, of Food IQ, 100 Questions, Answers, and Recipes to Raise Your Cooking Smarts. Today on the show, Daniel offers advice on whether the kind of onion and potato you use in a recipe matters and whether it's okay to use frozen vegetables. He explains why you should be less worried about getting foodborne illness from meat and the type of food that's more likely to make you sick. Daniel offers the lowdown on salt, including how to figure out exactly how much you need in a dish, when to use the convection bake function on your oven, his recommendation for the best frying pan and chef's knife, the secrets to making perfect spaghetti, scrambled eggs, and steak, and plenty of other tips as well. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash foodiq. Daniel Holzman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you are a chef and uh, you got a book out called Food IQ, 100 Questions, Answers, and Recipes to Raise Your Cooking Smarts. This book was just, it was a fantastic read, super informative, a lot of fun. And you answer, I think, a lot of questions that people have had about cooking, but didn't know who to ask. We're going to talk about some of this stuff. But before we do, talk about your career. How did you end up doing what you do? What, what kind of chef are you? And what were you trying to do with this book, Food IQ? I, you know, I grew up in New York City. My mom worked nights. And so I found myself alone and part of, you know, I don't know, my mom helped me get a job in a restaurant because it was kind of the only place I could get a job as a young kid to keep me company and, you know, keep me out of trouble, I guess. So when I was 13, 14 years old, I was delivering pizzas and working at the local Mexican restaurant and found my way into the kitchen because I guess uh, I was just attracted to the like. You know, everybody told everybody in the kitchen, yes, sir. And they had tattoos and there was fire in the kitchen and they were kind of just seemed, seemed like the, seemed like the place to be. Well, I, I, I worked as a waiter and everyone feared the cooks. Yeah. They, 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 they get the power. They don't get the money, the glory or the fame, but they get that, they get the power. So if you have a shorty complex, the kitchen is a great place to exercise your will, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> And so what are you, what are you doing now? So I, you know, working in kitchens my whole life, I started working in fancier restaurants. And at some point I realized that I like cooking food that my friends and my family can afford and, you know, and that, and that everyday food wasn't getting the level of respect that maybe it deserved. And, you know, great cooks want to cook with the finest ingredients and they want to push their limits. And that makes sense. But a delicious hamburger or a piece of fried chicken or a meatball or a slice of pizza should, you know, should deserve the same level of, of respect. And so I started a meatball restaurant with my partner, Michael in New York, and we made these uh meatball shop. We had these kind of, you know, a more humble approach to the food. And then I'm recently moved out to Los Angeles where I started a pizzeria. I've been making pizza by the slice downtown LA at a restaurant called Danny boy's famous original pizza which is a throwback to the Ray Barry's famous original pizzerias of my, of my childhood in New York. So that's what I do for a living. I, 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 right now I, I throw pies in the air. I'm learning how to throw pies in the air. It's a very, it's very fun. 
And so with this book, what was the, what was the impetus behind this book, Food IQ? I think as a chef, you know, I've, I've had this writing partner, Matt Rodbard, for 10 years we've been working together. He's one of my dear friends. It started out as kind of like a eating adventures in Queens. And then we started a column, writing a column together about our time, you know, looking for great, interesting, off the path, you know, food finds. And, you know, as a chef and as a food writer, you're constantly getting questions from people. How do I cook this piece of salmon? You know, what's the difference between these two different types of salt? You know, why are there all these different types of olive oils? What, what frying pan should I buy? And, you know, it was over and over and over. And the thing about these questions are, you know, they're really not like Googleable questions as much as it seems like they, they require research. And so we started a column that was called a hundred questions for my friend, the chef. And it was really popular and we were, we were writing it every week and, and ultimately it kind of, it morphed into, Hey, we should start to, like we expanded on it. And, and that was kind of the idea of the, of food IQ the, that as a home cook, there's a lot of intimidation around cooking, but it shouldn't be. The whole point is it should be fun. You feed yourself, you feed your family. It should be less expensive, more fun, less stressful. And so we're trying to kind of cut through some of the murk and give, give a clearer, a clearer vision for folks. Well, so like I said, I, I love this book because you do, you do just what you said you were trying to do. Answer these questions that aren't very Googleable, a Googleable. I guess it's Googleable. Googleable. Um, so I, I want to give people like a, a taste of some of the things you, you talk about in this book. Let's talk about picking out ingredients when you're shopping for a meal. This raises a lot of questions. One that I've constantly had when I've had a recipe that's called for one onion. You know, I'll go to the produce section and then there's white onions, yellow onions, and red onions. And I'm like, well, which onion do I get if it says one onion? So like, what's the difference between the onions and like, when would you use one over the other? I think this is where, this is where folks get stuck. And, you know, you go to the supermarket, you see all of this kind of like cornucopia, this like, you know, all these different choices. And the truth is you can use any onion and it'll be just fine. You know, if you want to dork out and really get specific, uh, individual onions have, have qualities. So, you know, the Maui sweet onions that say Maui sweet or onions aren't, aren't necessarily sweeter than the other onions. They don't necessarily have more sugar in them. They might have a little less sulfur, so they're a little less bite if you're eating them raw. But when you cook them down, it's hard to really tell the difference between the different onions. The, if you go with the yellow onion, it's always a, it's always a, the, the yellow onion is kind of the workhorse. The yellow Spanish onion, you just, you can kind of use that for everything. And then, you know, you choose by color. You say, I want a salad. It will look good with some red onions or or I'm pickling these onions and I don't want to have any color. I'll use a white onion and you can get deeper into it, obviously. And then, and then that's where you, you know, you go from being a cook to being a chef or whatever it is. But ultimately the onions are interchangeable. Don't, don't waste time in the onion aisle. Yeah. The one takeaway though, I got when first, as far as presentation, now when I make burgers, I get red onions because just, it just looks pretty. Yeah. I mean, we, I've worked in restaurants where like the chef is like, we're only using red onions because they're sweeter. And then, you know, that's, it works. And then it's a kind of easy to, it's, it's really easy to, to claim something when, when, when all the answers are right. Right. Well, and then another tip you gave too, about avoiding crying when you're cutting onions, use a sharp knife. Yeah. I mean, you could definitely wear those ski goggles or put bread in your mouth or, you know, gargle upside down with water or whatever the like old wives tales are that, that, um, that are out there, but 
ultimately you cry because you crush the onion and there's kind of a, there's a, a an acid in there that gets mixed in with your eyes and, and makes, makes a burn. And if you use a sharp knife, you don't crush the cells. The acid is uh, less of the acid is released and voila, as they say, right. across the pond. All right. Potatoes are another one. You go and it says you need potatoes and you go to the potato section and there's like four different kinds of potatoes. What's the difference between the different types of potatoes and like when would you use one over the other or does it matter? Unfortunately, your you, this one is matters a bit more. Okay, you know some some potatoes are are are, are quite starchy, like a russet or a Kennebec potato, the baking potato, potato you use for French frying. It's a little drier and a little a uh, little more starchy. And then if you get into the like red bliss potatoes um, or fingerling potatoes, are a little bit more waxy. And so you know if you think about that, like. For mashed potatoes, a, a dry, starchy potato like the Kennebec potato is really, really great. Or a, or a russet potato or an Idaho potato. I think they call them baking potatoes, big dogs. And then some of the smaller potatoes, when they're, when they're more waxy, they tend, if you try to mash them, to get a little gummy, almost gummy in texture, so they're better roasted. Again, it's not like going to ruin Christmas if you use the wrong type of potato. It's, it'll be delicious. I love... Yukon gold potatoes because they're kind of right in between. They're a medium starch potato and they have a really thin skin. So you can kind of do everything with them and you don't have to peel them. If you're making mashed potatoes, the peel just kind of disintegrates and gives it a nice texture. Okay. So the russet, like the, the more starchy potato, that's when you'd want to add like fats to it to make it like a cream or a butter. It makes it a little less flaky, I guess, is the... the yeah, it absorbs more. Like if you were making gnocchi, for instance, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want to use like a a, a, a starchy potato, excuse me, a, a, a waxy potato because it'll be like, have a gummy texture, almost like a pasta that's cooked in cold water or undercooked or something. But, you know, if you're, if, if uh, the russet potatoes, the starchier potatoes, they do absorb more fat so if you're making mashed potatoes, you want them really buttery, really creamy. You know, when I'm making, I think people get, get shocked when I'm making mashed potatoes, I'm putting like a ton of butter, a ton of cream. And then you, you know, if anybody's ever made this mistake, I'm sure we have, you make your mashed potatoes, you think they're perfect texture, you put them out on the table. And then when you go to scoop them, it's like a brick because the, yeah. the starch in those potatoes just continues to absorb the moisture um, and hydrate. So, you know. If you want to be able to add maximum flavor, that's the way to go. Start your potato for sure. Let's talk about vegetables. So I've had instances where I haven't been able to get to the grocery store to get you know fresh produce, fresh vegetables, but I had some frozen stuff. Is using the frozen stuff okay? This was this kind of my, Matt Matt Rodbard, you know, food writer Daniel Holzman, chef. We are, we're, we're pretty snooty about frozen food. It's kind of like you 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 know. You look down on folks who use frozen vegetables. Sorry, bud. And so we were talking about it one day and we thought, you know, we're, we have this strong opinion, but we've never really given it a go. So let's buy some frozen vegetables. It was kind of like a snarky attempt to, to prove ourselves right. And um, we were shocked. I mean, there's amazing quality frozen vegetables. And, you know, we were using asparagus that we thought would just be mushy and terrible. And it turns out, you know, these are not your grandma's frozen vegetables. A lot of technology has gone into, a lot of technological advances have happened in the last, you know, hundred years. We all know that. And 
those advances show themselves in places like the freezer section where the cold chain isn't broken so that, you know, a vegetable gets frozen out in the field and it, and it makes it all way, clean, frozen, picked, clean, frozen at the height of freshness out in the field, makes it all the way to your freezer without ever having kind of like uh, melted, which tends to get them a little bit mushy. And they're like snappy and crunchy and fresh and, and delicious. So if I had a farmer's market next door, I don't think I would be using the frozen asparagus in the spring. But they're absolutely, you shouldn't be ashamed of them. And probably no one will know. So, yes, feel good about okay. the frozen vegetables. Feel good about the frozen vegetables. <laughs> Here's another issue I've had and you talk about is picking out avocados. I'll spend, you know, minutes trying to figure out, find the right avocado for different situations. Like the problem I have with avocados is if I'm making a meal like two days out, I'm trying to, well, is this avocado going to be ready for that? So any tips on picking an avocado for your meals? I feel like picking an avocado is like buying a house, you know, it's a real investment. You spend like four bucks on one of those bad boys and then you open it up and it's got those like brown streaks in it and it's ruined or it's hard as a rock. And you, I mean, you know, avocado, my dad had an avocado tree in his backyard. Avocados take like a month and a half to ripen and they only ripen off the tree. We didn't realize that for the first couple of years, we were like, these things are like, you know, good for playing baseball. It's about it. Uh, And so we're just throwing them out, you know? And then we figured out like, oh, these things take a month, month and a half to ripen. So you can really buy an avocado and then, you know, for, for dinner in two days and like two weeks later, it's still rock hard. The trick is a gentle push. So you don't ruin or mash whatever's going on. You push on it a little bit if your thumb just gently starts to push in. But the best trick I've found is, is you pull that little bolster, that little nub of a branch that's still stuck in there out and you look inside and you want it to be, so you want it to be just barely soft but you want that to be bright green. If there's any brown under the stem, it will mean that it could probably be a bit rotten over the edge, over the edge, over the edge. You want to avoid over, over the line, Lebowski. <laughs> All right. So I, I like that. I, I'm going to use that tip. Take off the nub. That's a really cool one. Let's talk about picking out meat. Like let's start with beef. Do you think grass fed beef is worth it? I think that, you know, contextually all things are worth it, but it just depends upon what your goal is. You know, America traditionally is not a grass fed beef country. Like we make really, we, we have the best beef in the world. In my opinion, I'm a big America guy. Why not? I love my country. And I love that. I love like a delicious, juicy steak. And when I think of that, I think of grain fed meat. Grass fed beef is leaner. It can be gamier and it can be really, really delicious, but you don't cook it the same way. So for those of us that were brought up, most of us here, you know, in America that were brought up on grain fed beef, trans transitioning over, we think, well, this, we don't love the way this tastes often, but usually that's because we don't really know how to cook it. Most of the countries where you find, you know, grass-fed beef. They either cut the, the meat quite thin and serve it on the rare side or or it's you know kind of really, really thinly cut and cooked on well done. So I like I like the flavor of grass-fed beef and I've definitely had some amazing experiences with grass-fed beef. But generally I don't, you know, like do I really think that grass-fed beef is super healthy for you? I think that if you really, really want to be healthy, you should limit the amount of, you know, beef you eat. Is the probably, and I like the one tip I I really took away from when you're picking out beef is where you go to get your beef or meat, uh, whatever butcher. Make sure the butcher knows like the source of their meat because then they're they're able to answer more questions that you have about you about the meat you're buying. I think like if you ask that one question to a butcher, like, hey, where did this meat come from? 
and they can answer that, you know, you know, you are dealing with somebody who cares and knows a lot. And, you know, that is, it's, it's actually a really simple, but very, very complicated question to answer because the nature of the, the beef market in America is not so straightforward. You know, beef doesn't get grown in one place. They tend to trade hands quite often. It's a commodity. So they'll travel all over the country and they get, you know, farmed in one place and finished in another and butchered in another. So, you know, by the time it gets to you, it could have traded hands so many times. It's very difficult to know exactly what's going on there, especially with stuff like ground beef, where you can have different cows from different places in the world, all kind of mixed in together, different steer. Um, So yeah, if you ask the butcher where the beef came from and, and they can answer that question, where the meat came from, they can answer that question. You're going a long way. You're cutting through a lot of it and you really get somebody that knows what they're talking about, cares a lot. It's pretty impressive. And you had this one section that I loved because it answered some questions that I've often had about uh, foodborne illness from meat. And you, you guys make the case that you probably shouldn't be too freaked out about foodborne illness from meat. Why is that? I always laugh at, you know, I always say that like my, I've got the stomach of Billy Goat, like an alley cat. I can eat anything, you know, I never get sick. And my wife's always, she's like, you're just constantly complaining that your stomach hurts. <laughs> So I don't know, maybe I don't have the, I'm not the best person to take my advice, but um, realistically, you know, when we get, there's kind of a couple different, we get like a grumbly tummy, you know, I ate too much, or maybe it was a little fatty, didn't agree with me, too much acid, something like that, slept on the wrong side. You know, that, that aside, when you really get food sick, it's a, it's a really extreme and terrible experience. One that few of us forget. And often it'll be the last time we eat the thing that we associated with. Like, you know, you ate those oysters, you were like writhing in pain, thought you had to go to the hospital, or maybe you should just end it. And then um, you think I'm never eating an oyster again. That's it. It's not, it ain't worth it. But usually it wasn't the oyster. It was like the salad because um, salad is just way more vulnerable. A lot of foodborne illnesses die with heat. So when you cook something, it makes it uh, innocuous or whatever they call it, benevolent, benevolent, benevolent bacteria. <laughs> um, it, uh, it makes it safe to eat. So, um, you know, for all those things that we're cooking and something like a steak, you know, bacteria doesn't like find its way into the center of the steak. It'll be on the outside. So, you know, if you, if you grill it, even if it's rare in the middle, it's still cooked on the outside. And if meat has gone bad to the point where it's going to get you sick, like, you know it. A bad piece of meat is extraordinarily pungent and neg- it's just terrible. Like no one's eating like rotten chicken. You know what rotten chicken smells like. You Sounds know, gross. people are often like smelling, they're like, is this chicken okay? I'm like, trust me, homie. If the chicken was not good, you wouldn't be asking. You'd be throwing it away because it smells disgusting. Like we are, you know, for thousands of years programmed, uh, you know, we don't really trust our instincts as human beings because we have these big old brains that you know, supersede, but like, trust your instincts with the meat. If it smells bad, don't eat it. And if it smells fine, also you can rinse it off because bacteria lives on the outside. Just like, you know, when you smell bad, you don't throw yourself out. You take a shower. So give your, give your chicken a shower is okay. What about, uh, you know, I think people like are, you know, they, they're okay eating a rare steak, you know, if it's just red in the middle, what about chicken? I know a lot of people freak out. Oh, there's still pink in the middle. Is that going to, are you going to get salmonella? (laughs) I think we've just been programmed to you know, we've just been programmed that like pork is scary, chicken scary, beef is not, but you know, it's a bit arbitrary. And obviously like salmonella does exist and, you know, 
there are cases of folks that that have gotten salmonella, but it's really, 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 really rare. I mean, you like drive to work on the freeway. That's super dangerous. Eating a piece of rare chicken is kind of like, you know, be like, you know, walking your dog on a Sunday afternoon. You could get hit by a car, but quite unlikely. So, you know, I don't love, I've been looking in Japan, they eat a lot of raw chicken and, you know, I, I've been traveling around and eating some raw chicken. It's not my favorite texture in the world. You know, I didn't grow up with it in my childhood. So maybe that's why I associated it. It just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't sit perfectly well with me. So I tend to cook my chicken, but I cook my chicken to like medium. If you follow the guidelines set out by the US, the USDA sets out these like safe cooking temperature guidelines. And if you, if anybody's ever like cooked a turkey till that little, like the, till the turkey is ready, the thing pops out. Your turkey is just like dry, like sand you know, crumbly and just terrible. Everybody hates turkey because they overcook it, not because turkey's terrible. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of cooking things until they're most delicious temperature. You know, is it more risky? You're not going to, you know, like I'm still alive. I'm here talking to you, you know, but I have, I, I, there's other risky behaviors in my life. So I don't know. Again, I wouldn't take my advice and bring it to a lawyer, but you know, <laughs> for, for maximum deliciousness, don't overcook your chicken. Yeah, I think you're right. I think if if you're going to get sick from food, it's probably going to be from produce. I mean, I, I think back at all the times I've gotten sick from eating, produce has always been involved. Like the last time I got really sick, uh, I ate these raw green beans. And that night I felt like I was going to, I just, I, I felt, I, I thought I was going to die. It was terrible. So you say always wash your produce, you know, use a, a salad spinner or whatever. Yeah. I think if you, you know, if you think about like, you know, lettuce grows on the ground and you know, you get deer that jump the fence and they're walking through their, you know, own fecal matter. And then it's kind of a gross way to say it, but true. And yeah. then, and then trotting on your lettuce and then that gets on the lettuce. And that's where, you know, you get that E. coli scare where you hear like, you know, all of the romaine in the Northeast was recalled because that's really dangerous. Like you eat that and it gets you very, very sick. If folks get hospitalized, if you're young or immunocompromised, it can be devastating. So like, you know, you don't really hear a lot about the great beef recall, but we hear a lot about kale and lettuce getting recalled because people eat it raw and because it grows on the ground. And yeah, that's what that's where it comes from. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Hey, if you're like me, you are busy. I'm coaching flag football two times a week. I'm in charge of church youth group. The kids have got school activities in the afternoons. We got to worry about that. So I'm always looking for ways to save time. And while I'm at it, be nice if I can save some money as well. Well, you can do that with Uber One. Uber One is a membership program that lets you save across Uber Eats and Uber Rides. You can get up to 10% off of Eats and 5% off eligible rides. Here's how I've been using Uber. I use Uber whenever I got to go to the airport. I got to drop the car off the mechanic and I don't want to have the bug Kate to give me a ride. Saves time. You can use Uber Eats to get food, of course. So if you're at a busy night, not going to have time to cook dinner. Boom, Uber Eats. You can also use Uber Eats to get deliveries on convenience items from drugstores, pharmacies, and other retailers. And you're saving money in the process when you join up with Uber One. You get an unlimited $0 delivery fee, up to 10% off Eats, and 5% off eligible rides. Join Uber One today and get your first month totally free. Visit uber.com slash uberone for details. Order minimums apply. Percentage off discounts only available for participating stores and non-scheduled rides. Subscription will auto-renew monthly at $9.99, starting one month from enrollment in the free trial unless you cancel. Visit uber.com slash uberone for terms. And now back to the show. All right, let's talk about salt. I've been to Whole Foods and I, there's like a whole aisle for salt now. There's like Himalayan pink salt, rock salt. Uh, 
Is there a difference between all these salts and should you use one instance over another? I think that there are some, you know, look, like there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there. So (laughs) there's like, there's some weird claims like you use this salt and you'll be healthy. It's like, yeah, like that's not, or, you know, it doesn't really work that way. Like salt's really good for us. Like we electrolyte water or whatever else, like we need it to, for, for, for human function. But, you know, the, the difference in the salt is really visual and textural and not flavor driven. So I think you can throw the health claims out the window first and foremost, but you know, if you want to be a weirdo and like, believe in that, that's completely, I, I, I have all the respect in the world. You're just scientifically not right, but maybe I'm wrong. So I just want to throw that caveat out there. But um, from a textural perspective, there, there it's a, there's a big difference. So like as a finishing salt, not dissolved, you know, on top of something, there's those like Malden salt have a great kind of texture crunch, the cell gris that have those like textural crunch to them. The pink Himalayan salt can look really, really beautiful or those like black, black volcanic salts, you know, you're making some kind of dish where that, that on the outside will look really beautiful. But if you dissolve the salt in water, and then taste it, the human palate cannot detect the difference with all the different mineral claims. So there is no flavor difference. So ultimately you're spending money to throw it away. So I'm a kosher salt guy, not just because I'm Jewish, but because it's uh, because I'm not kosher, but it's the least expensive, most consistent. And the most important piece of the puzzle, I think when it comes to using any salt is to be really consistent because the one big difference is depending upon the size of the salt crystals, your pinch will be different. Like you can practice, you can, if you get a digital scale, you can kind of weigh different pinch sizes of salt from different pinches of salt from different, or even teaspoons of salt, um, you know, a volumetric measurement of different types of salt. And you realize they weigh vastly different amounts because they stack differently. So by being consistent, you'll be consistent with your seasoning. I moved from New York where, where diamond crystal was kind of like predominant. And then out here in LA, Morton's, Morton's uh, kosher salt is the, is the kind of like ubiquitous. So I started using Morton's and I started over seasoning everything. I mean, everything I made it, people would be like, oh, it's a little salty. And it was because the Morton's is saltier by the, by volume than diamond crystal. And so it took some adjusting. Do you think people typically over or under salt their food? I think people like undersalt their food, like criminally undersalt their food. I think it's the number, it's a pandemic. It's the number one issue with food. You know, home cooks are like, why does my food not taste good? And you're just like, because you didn't. People are, because look, the reality is you can always add more salt. So oversalting is devastating. It's like lights out curtains on the whole meal. There's nothing you can do to fix it. It's done. So I understand being afraid of that, but, you know, undersalted food is, you know, it's terrible. (laughs) All right. So when it says salt liberally, like you should salt liberally, like more than you think you need to. You know, and I think, look, ultimately what you should really do is you should taste before you bring it out to the table. And Mm. then, and then you should season it again. Don't be afraid to add more salt. If you think it's, if look, if you're like, ah, what does it need? Add more salt. Because what does it need means it's not salty enough, period. Every time you know, seven days a week, twice on Sunday. We at, in Food IQ, Matt and I really tried to break down a few of these questions to help folks. Like if you, if you think about it, like 1% by weight of salt is pretty much the right amount. If that makes sense in, in scenarios where all the salt is going to be served. So like 
And a lot of times you salt something and not all the salt makes its way to your mouth, right? Like you salt the water for the pasta and then you cook the pasta in it. Not all that salt you put in the water is getting consumed, right? Just the stuff that got absorbed by the pasta. So you use a lot more salt so that the pasta will absorb the right amount and the rest gets kind of thrown away. But when it comes to salting something that you're going to like eat, 1% by weight will get you there. So when in doubt, like use the metric system, weigh it, divide by 100, add that amount of salt. Salting a chicken, for instance, that's a really great way to do it. You salt it overnight and you know it's properly seasoned. It'll, you'll be a winner at your next chicken dinner. All right, let's talk tools of the trade. Is there one all-purpose pan you think a home chef should have? I hate to like, you know, to hawk the like expensive brand, but a 10-inch all-clad saute pan, frying pan, whatever it is, it's a really great tool. And I've had the same one hanging in my kitchen and I use it almost every single day for like ever. It's just a, it's just a, it's just a perfectly made piece of equipment. It's perfectly designed. It's durable, easy to clean. You know, you can pretty much make almost anything you need in that pan. So yeah, I think that it's worth, and look, it's like, you know, it's like, wow, it's almost 150 bucks, 180 bucks. That is a ton of dough. And I completely understand being like, well, I could just buy, but I feel like people are like always buying a set of pans. If I had a choice of buying like the 47 piece set for, you know, $800, I'd rather spend the 800 bucks on four or three of the pieces, great quality pieces that I need. Cause let's face it. We actually don't use all those pans. Folks don't use all those pans. No, I think, I think a lot of times people buy the set cause it looks good hanging up in their kitchen. I certainly have one of them hanging up in my kitchen. So yeah, I can't blame him for that. <laughs> and so yeah, I love how you also get into like the difference between nonstick, stainless steel, cast iron, carbon. St- I mean, is there a big difference? And if there is like, when would you use one over the other? Or is it just a matter of preference? I feel like this is more like the potatoes and then the onions. So there, there is a difference, but you know, like, again, if you get a stainless steel, all clad pan, like it'll work for almost for anything. Now, if you use a cast iron pan, the downside is that it can rust, takes a little bit more care. It's quite heavy. The upside is the weight of the cast iron pan. It holds a lot more heat. So there's just more mass of metal and that metal holds more heat. So like, let's say you take a piece of steak, cold steak, thick steak. And you think of that steak is, you know, what temperature is it? 40 degrees and it's a pound of steak. You put that in a, in a thinner frying pan, and that cold steak will draw the heat out of the pan. And then that's when you start to get like either maybe it starts to stick or it starts to kind of like release its liquid and simmer. You get that grayish kind of color and that boiled flavor because it's kind of boiling the water, but it's steaming the steak. Whereas a cast iron pan's got all that heat mass and you put that cold steak in there. And even though it's drawing the temperature out, there's enough temperature to maintain so that it sears all the way through and it gets really nice and golden brown and, and it's crispy all the, you know, the whole time. So a thicker, heavier pan will hold more heat, you know, cast iron again, requires more care can rust. So you really have some special kind of care that you need to take a thinner pan heats up faster though. So that's interesting. It responds. So you use a cast iron pan. If it's too hot or it's too cold, like it's going to take a few minutes to, to change that temperature. So it's like, you're not making, you're not making um, adjustments on the fly. And then nonstick pans, like, you know, they're just, you know, because they're really great and there's, they're, they're really, they work so well. 
I feel like they become a crutch that we use them for everything. And that's just, it's a little bit, it's a little bit lazy. So there's nothing wrong with it, but ultimately, you know, they, they don't last forever. So I have a nonstick pan. I, I love the watching Jacques Pepin and then trying to make a perfect omelet in a regular stainless steel pan. And I do it and I'm proud of myself when it works, but like, you know, if it was a competition or I had a really important guest, you reach for the nonstick pan. Cause you know, it's foolproof. It's going to work really, really well for those type of, for those, you know, for those like sticky situations. All right, let's talk about knives. What's your take on kitchen knives? Is there, su- is there such a thing as the best kitchen knife? <laughs> I think that the Vustoff 10 inch or, or depending upon your eight to 10, depending upon how big of a hand and you know, you have chef's knife is kind of like that knife is really pretty bomb proof. It's like the all clad pan. It's really, it's really amazing, but knives, I'd say part of knives are the, are the, you know, any knife you can get almost any piece of steel sharp. If you sharpen your own knives, if you're one of those types of people, or if you send them out to get sharp, ultimately a sharper knife is a better knife, right? So like most folks, it doesn't really matter what quality knife they're using because their knives are just dull. So it's like, you might as well just throw it away, not to be glib or rude about it, but like the sharpness of the knife is the most important piece of the puzzle. I love that my like 10 inch, I have a nine inch Vostoff chef's knife that I've had forever. And the thing is just amazingly well-crafted. It holds its edge. It sharpens easily. It It's weighted perfectly, but knives are more than just how well they perform. There's also the kind of aesthetic and how they hold in your hand. And I've got some beautiful Japanese knives that I'm really, really proud of on my counter. I always have kind of fancy Japanese knives, <clears throat> but I'm a chef. So I've got like this knife collection of, you know, knives that are gifted or knives that I've bought over the years. So, you know, if you, if you buy a Victorinox kind of like plastic handled knife, the steel is great. They're well-crafted. They're very, very comfortable. It's what most butchers use and they work great. So like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And they're, they're less expensive and you shouldn't feel uncomfortable about it. But, you know, again, you, you buy stuff for the way it looks and feels and how it makes you feel. And if you think having an expensive knife will make you a better cook, then I'm all for it. Okay. Let's talk about the oven. So I think everyone's seen the convection bake button on their oven. What is that? And like, when would you use it? I've always wondered, like, when should I be using this? I feel like the technology in the kitchen just, it's a shame because it's like, it's really, really helps a lot. There's a lot of good comes of it, but it's intimidating again. And, you know, like if you just have a fire, you can make a delicious meal. It's like, you don't have to really feel like you need the convection oven. Most ovens, uh, you know, the the fire's on the bottom, it heats up. The natural convective kind of heat rises, keeps the heat bouncing around on the inside. The steel or whatever the oven's made of heats up and then it radiates heat into your food, radiant heat. Convection is like having a, a fan in there that blows the air. So you get a drier heat. So it crisps stuff up, it browns it faster. If you were baking chocolate chip cookies, you don't want to use it. You want you want radiant heat that's slow and gentle. Convection when you're baking chocolate chip cookies can be really detrimental. But if you want to like crisp Brussels sprouts, then I'd say convection is a great way to go. People think it's faster because it's it's like it's not hotter and you know it's like it's not hotter but energy-wise it's hotter. So it's it is adding more energy more quickly to the food. So okay, I cook a prime rib every new year for my family. 
should I be convection baking that thing when I'm roasting it the entire time or just regular bake? You should be doing regular bake and not convection. When you're thinking about prime rib, you're thinking of a big piece of meat and that, that fan will dry out and brown the outside before the inside is cooked. So if you think about it, it's a, it's a, it's faster and harsher. So it's great for browning on the outside, but you could burn it before it cooks all the way through. Whereas if you use a regular um, gentle heat, it'll bake more evenly. Same thing with that Thanksgiving turkey. You know, like we've all seen when, when the turkey skin gets burned before the inside's cooked, it's kind of like, it's hard to come back from that one. So I'd say no convection. No convection, Vic. Let's talk about, I thought this was interesting. You make the case that people should start weighing their ingredients instead of doling them out and measuring spoons and cups. Why is that? I feel like, I mean, as a chef, I weigh everything and every one of my recipes at the restaurants are, you know, gram weight. And look, like a scale used to be an expensive kind of difficult thing to navigate. And it just isn't that way anymore. You can go on Amazon and buy a scale for 25 bucks and it'll last forever. And it's super, super accurate. It's small and light and easy to use. And there's no reason not to. When you weigh stuff, you get really, really accurate consistency. And when you keep track of stuff by weight, you start to help yourself under like, you know, our grandma would have told us, you know, you add a pinch of salt and we know what a pinch of salt is, or she certainly does. But like, you know, my grandma's fingers and my fingers were different size and my pinch of salt is a little bit different. And it's very hard to communicate and remember for her, it was easy. She, she knows I always use a handful of salt in that or a pinch of salt in that. Well, it's, you're training yourself to remember like hundred grams of salt for, for this or 50 for that. And again, when it comes to that, like chicken, it's a lot, it becomes a lot harder to, to figure out exactly how much salt I need. Whereas when I, when I weigh stuff and I think, well, 1%, it's very, very easy for me to calculate the salt properly. And then the biggest one for me is like, I love trying to perfect something. And I hear a lot of people like, oh man, I've been making this over and over. I'm really trying to perfect it. When you weigh your ingredients, you really give yourself a great advantage because you know exactly how to adjust something, right? Like a little more salt, actually. You can say, well, let's go with 10% more. And it's really, really easy to remember that. Like it, it, I, I find it to be, if you're serious and you really want to make great food, it'll be one of the steps you can take to 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 step up your game big time. Okay. And I think too, like with baking, measuring by weighing is probably, it, you'll get a better result if you do that instead of just trying to use the big measuring cups. Like the flour, if you weigh flour from one day to another, a given volume of flour will weigh a different amount because there's more moisture or less moisture. Like the, the volume is just less accurate and less consistent. We talked about it with the salt, all ingredients. Like think about like a cup of chopped strawberries, you know, think of how much spinach, when they say like a cup of spinach, think about how much spinach you could jam into a cup. Or if you lightly pack it, it's like one leaf, you know, it's just really, really difficult to convey consistently. Like think about the difference in the size of one onion. You know, I've seen onions the size of my head. And then you see onions that are the size of like a, you know, like a pebble. It's really difficult to, to maintain consistency without, without weight, which is, you know, weight is really, really definite. All right. Let's talk about some basic kitchen staples that people mess up all the time. And one you start off with was spaghetti. How do people mess up spaghetti? I mean, it just seems like you're just 
putting dry pasta in boiling, boiling water. So how does this go wrong? I mean, I feel like how do people mess up spaghetti? That could be my next book, 100 Ways to Mess Up Spaghetti. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that people don't understand that that whole heat thing we were talking about with the frying pan, like a thicker, heavier frying pan will, you know, have more heat. Well, when you're boiling spaghetti, you want to cook it in rapidly boiling water, right? So like anything less than that and the spaghetti can be quite gummy. So the trick is keeping the water boiling. And the way to do that is using enough water that when you add the cold pasta to the boiling water, it doesn't cool it down and stop it from boiling. And the way to do that is with lots of water. So like, I think the number one way people mess up pasta is they just cook it in too small of a pot, you know? There's no amount of water that's too much. For me, it's a gallon a pound is the right is the right kind of ratio. So if you're using, you should just, you know, and you can't put a gallon in a gallon pot, right? Because it's going to spill all over the place. So like if I'm doing a pound of pasta, I use an eight quart pot and I put four or five, six quarts of water in there. I bring it to a rapid boil with the cover on. You salt the water to season the pasta. Otherwise your pasta isn't going to get seasoned at all. And you want that, that salt to, you know, the pasta to be seasoned properly. And then obviously folks overcook their pasta. So you cook it one minute less than it says on the package, and then you finish it in whatever sauce you're, you're planning on serving it with so that it absorbs the flavor. That's kind of the, that's kind of the restaurant method for making great pasta, but definitely a lot of very rapidly boiling water. Otherwise you're just never going to come back from that. Is throwing spaghetti at the refrigerator. Is that a good way to know if it's ready? I like to toss my spaghetti my mom is a painter, so I like to just throw it right at her paintings. <laughs> I mean, you can't, you should not. I, I have th- I have done the spaghetti test. And the reality is if you throw it at the wall and it sticks, it's really overcooked. So if you're going for, if you're going for mushy spaghetti, I think I made honey boo boo child's uh, spaghetti recipe with ketchup. And she, she suggests that that was the only time I really tried it. And it works. It works. If it sticks, it's overcooked. So if it sticks, you start over. Okay. Let's talk about scrambled eggs. Seems like that's an easy thing to do, you know, put in a pan, but how do people mess up scrambled eggs? Before we started recording, you were like, you know, I think I'm going to do that like pasta with the garlic recipe. It seems pretty simple. And I was like, wow, that's the hardest one. (laughs) I'm like the, the simpler, the recipe, the fewer ingredients, the more masterful your technique needs to be because the more your, the flaws will show themselves, right? You can't really hide. Like when you do something with a hundred steps and a hundred ingredients and you mess up a couple, you're, you're 98% there. When you only have three steps and three ingredients, like each one is really, it's imperative that you you take it. So like scrambled eggs are a way that a chef can really show off. And scrambled eggs are fun and easy and quick, but a slow scramble is, a, is, is really where it's at. You want to really slowly cook those eggs with more butter than you ever thought you could possibly use in there, mixing them the entire time until they just start to set. And then you can get something that's really special. You know, scrambled eggs are like, a, can be a utility food. Right. It's like, I need something to eat and I'm hungry and anybody can do it. And I can throw it together like cheese and crackers, but they can also be really, really delicious and special if you take a little bit more time and not much more time, but like three minutes instead of 30 seconds. Yeah. I, when I cook scrambled eggs in the morning, it's 30 seconds. I'm just looking for, I just need the, the stuff to stick together. So I can put in a tortilla and just eat as quickly as can. So I got to get out the door and do stuff. But we did an article 
was last year about how to make James Bond scrambled eggs. So apparently Ian Fleming, you know, James Bond loves scrambled eggs. It was his favorite food. He'd eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then one of the, uh, I think the, the Living Daylights is a short story about 007. Ian Fleming, he, he loves scrambled eggs as well. And he gave his recipe that he thinks that he ate and that James Bond would probably eat. And the thing that surprised me about it, it was like he used so much butter. It was five to six ounces of fresh butter. It kind of became this like really rich, creamy thing. It was, it was different, but it was good. I feel like, you know, the recipe in our book has a lot of butter in it and it advocates using really good butter for something like scrambled egg, where it's one of the main ingredients. So I'm, uh, I'm an Ian Fleming. I'm, a, I'm, I'm on his side. I'm on his side. I'm with him. Lots of butter. All right, let's talk about steak. What's your take on grilling a, a nice, juicy steak? I feel like, man, so the number one, I've been, I find this a lot and it's kind of a shame. You know, once you learn how important seasoning ahead of time really is, you know, the thicker the piece of meat, the more in advance you need to season it to, for the flavor of salt to absorb. So like, once you learn that, it's really hard to come back from because you're like, man, I don't want to cook anything that's, that, that I don't have 24 hours to cook. It can be really unfortunate. Like I would never, I will, I will not roast a chicken if I can't salt it the day before. It's just not worth it because like, it's just not worth it. The, the, the flavor is so much better and the cooking becomes better. It's, it stays moist. So like salting in advance, I salt a steak an hour in advance. I leave it out on my, now depending. It, I will often leave it out on the counter and let it come up to room temperature. If it's really thick, that'll help me to get a more consistent cook, right? You don't like love that bullseye steak where you get like dark brown, gray, and then like, you know, raw in the middle. That happens because often it's not rested long enough. That's like, that's probably the number one mistake folks make is the, the resting period. We can get to that. But the thicker the piece of meat, the warmer you kind of want to cook it. So like if I'm cooking a really thin steak, I want to keep it rare. I keep it in the fridge until I throw it in the pan and that'll keep the center a little cooler while the outside has a time to kind of crisp up. That kind of makes sense. So the temperature control and then understanding that if you start with from the fridge or start from on the countertop, that temperature difference will make a big difference in your cook time. So be aware of that. Like three minutes on each side from the fridge might be right, might be blood rare, but it might be medium if you're going from, from room temperature. So keep that in mind. But the rest period after I cook a steak is equally as important. So if you cook a steak and then but cut into it right away, basically when you cut into your steak and you see you know that juice kind of bleeding out onto your cutting board, that means your steak was not rested long enough. Any piece of meat needs to rest. And um, it's really like, a, I'll rest a, a Thanksgiving turkey for an hour right? Really, it needs, it needs 30 to 40 minutes minimum rest time for the temperature to equalize between the center and the outside. The temperature continues to travel towards the center and then and the outside cools. The juices redistribute and reabsorb and it gets really moist and delicious. So steak is only maybe an inch thick. It might only take 10 minutes but that rest period is just as important as the cooking time. So give it the time to rest after you're done cooking. You'll be really thankful. Okay. So rest time on a steak, that's 10 minutes if it's about an inch thick and a little less if it's thinner. Let's just say that a, that a, a steak that's, that's half inch to one inch thick should be five to 10 minutes. Like you know, five minutes on a, on a thinner steak and 10 minutes on a thicker steak. 
That's good to know. I typically don't rest a steak. I just go right into Because like, I don't, usually when you're cooking steak, I'm like, okay, we're going to have it for Tuesday night dinner and sort of last minute. So this is good to know. I'm going to take a little bit more time. But like, you, if you organize yourself a little bit, like you're like, oh, well, you know, if you think about it, you're like, well, the steak's going to take eight minutes to cook. So like, I'll start at eight minutes before I'm going to start serving. Like that air traffic control of how I organize my my meal prep. If you just think about it in terms of like eight plus five, to rest. And so start at 13 minutes early. And then, you know, you throw the asparagus in after the steak instead of before, and it all kind of makes sense. Daniel, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? If you go to www.foodiq.co.co, you can see my, my partner, um, Matt Rodbard's beautiful face. And he's, he's a, he's a really amazing writer. I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. He's a great journalist. I've been very lucky to get to work with him for tons of years and He's a fun, good friend, and you can read and there are recipes to download and stuff to play with. And you can, if you stop by Danny Boy's Pizza in LA, you'll see me there, and and we can you can say hello. I'll feed you a slice. Sounds good. Well, Daniel Holzman, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for your support for having us. It has been my pleasure. My guest here is Daniel Holzman. He's the co-author of the book Food IQ. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about the book at the website foodiq.co. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash foodiq. You can find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you'd think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you on the list they went podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Oh,